Welcome. My name is Xavier Zarr, and I'm the CEO of Federation Square. And today I'm pleased to be joined by Matt Anderson, Director of the Australian War Memorial. Welcome, Matt. Good afternoon, Xavier. You have an interesting story. You commenced as Director of the Australian War Memorial in April, not long after the onset of the restrictions that were required to suppress the pandemic. How have you dealt with that and the dual challenge of being new to the role and dealing with an unprecedented operating environment? I left uh, the United Kingdom to come to Canberra to start this job. So I actually left the UK when Boris Johnson was in hospital and the health secretary had been diagnosed. So regardless of, of what I found when I arrived in Australia, I still feel and felt that Australia was in a better condition than, than the UK. So in a sense, I, I found the calm, I found the order, I found the fact that, you know, people were taking it seriously here, you know, and I arrived, of course, to a memorial that was closed. That was perhaps the hardest thing, you know, when you travel across the world to take up a job and you arrive and, you know, the Australian War Memorial had been closed since the 23rd of March and I arrived on the 7th of, um, arrived in the job on the 7th of April. So the Minister for Veterans Affairs said to me at the time, he said, mate, you had one job and uh, the memorial was closed. So, you know, I think that was the first challenge, of course, is, you know, we are primarily in the people business. The Australian War Memorial is, is you know, services people, is run by people. We honour people. Uh, we have an Australian serviceman buried here and the notion that we could not open our doors to the public that we are chartered to serve was it was a very very difficult um, thing so we just had to get creative we had to say well how do we take the australian war memorial with its doors closed to the australian people and that of course means doing things digitally doing things cleverly uh, we were still challenged in my first two weeks with uh, you know by the prime minister to make the australian war memorial the center of the nation's commemorations so uh, that's never been done before in that way. And uh, that was two weeks into the job. We, we conceived of, of a, a national commemoration service, not a dawn service, but a national commemoration service that took the Australian War Memorial to the letterboxes, farm gates, porches and patios of Australia in a way that allowed people, perhaps for the first time in a long time, to commemorate Anzac Day in a way that was both meaningful for them, personal to them and in some regards, and certainly in some streets, far more community-minded and civic-minded because people, people could, for the first time, look up and down their street, see like-minded people standing at their letterboxes, see that some of them were wearing medals and think, gosh, I didn't know they'd served. And so in a, in a very special way, in a very different way, and hopefully never to be repeated way, we, we took the memorial and our national commemoration to Australia and in a way that piqued everyone's interest. So... How have we done it? Uh, with great flexibility, but I've hopefully to this point, um, you know, with a considerable amount of innovation and, um, um, and relevance. Relevance, certainly, because um, we, we were touched by uh, the Anzac Day uh, commemoration. Uh, my family would normally go to the local cenotaph at Heidelberg um, and gather mostly with the football clubs and then wander and afterwards. But on that particular morning, I looked up and down my street, Cape Street, <laughs> up and down my very, very long street in the dark, and I saw lights everywhere. And that innovation, I think, does you uh, a great deal of credit. Well, it was, it must be said, it was the, the RSL were the ones who first picked on the idea of, um, and, you know, light up the dawn, you know, and they were thinking of the candlelight vigil at the, at the, um, the people's doorsteps. I just don't think people quite understood 
that if we were going to do something that was meaningful and could be, you know, viewed on people's phones and iPads and tablets and other devices, you know, that people would just embrace, you know, the digital world in the way they had and, and in, you know, basically fully integrate into Anzac Day. So a lovely idea from uh, the RSL that encouraged us to try and if people were going to be standing at the um, letterboxes with their candles, then let's, let's connect. You know, if we couldn't gather in person, we decided we wanted people to gather in spirit. So you came to this role in this unusual time with really a, a dream CV, a saddlebag of pertinent experiences. And I, I can't go through them all, Matt, but I'll just say for our listeners, um, you know, the titles include Deputy High Commissioner, Ambassador, Chief Negotiator, a leadership role in the tsunami response, and, and a commander in the ADF. Now, this isn't a job interview, but how would you describe all those experiences and uh, and how they've equipped you to deal with this tumultuous time? Well, I think, um, you know, you mentioned commander. I mean, I went through the military college, uh, you know, last, as my children remind me, last century. So I, you know, you were actually funny enough taught at the Royal Military College the 10 principles of war, and one of them is flexibility. It sounds really odd, but we just have had to be flexible. One of the principles of war isn't maintaining a sense of humour, but by God, we've had to maintain a sense of humour. I think all of them have given me a sense of uh, perspective, both having worn a uniform, however poorly and however briefly, uh, but certainly I think being, um, you mentioned the tsunami, for example, when as a high commissioner, I was on the receiving end of an 8.3 earthquake and um, some 14-metre waves in Samoa, uh, to be able to pick up the phone and call on the Australian Defence Force to provide humanitarian assistance, you know, quite literally at a moment's notice and have, you know, HMAS Tobruk and HMAS Knimla and Manura and uh, two C-17s and eight C-130s just sort of come over and deliver life-saving aid and, you know, 118 doctors, surgeons and anaesthetists, paramedics from across Australia. I guess I have a, a, a pretty rich sense of, of the ADF's capability of our Australian military history, of our ability to do things that people don't often know. I, I guess you do now in Victoria as a consequence of, you know, the, the devastating bushfires, for example, um, at the start of the year. Who would have thought down at Malakuti you would have seen, you know, the Australian Defence Force helicopters, you know, airlifting people or, or using, you know, sea bridges to get people off beaches. Um, so that, but that's been my lived experience in the Pacific in particular. Um, and, of course, I was blessed to be Australia's ambassador in Afghanistan for 18 months. And, again, you know, when you're up close and personal with the remarkable women and men of the Australian Defence Force and that sense of contemporary service, all of that's equipped me to be able to come to the memorial and say that we are fit for purpose up to now, but we need to now incorporate in a continuing story, and, you know, that which is being done in our name by our remarkable men and women right now. And I think that's my job. So all of those things have equipped me I guess, to be um, sort of relevant to the contemporary generation of servicemen and women and have a probably a, a, a pretty, you know, detailed batch of work experience, you know, up close and personal with them. So I think that's what it's led to. I mean, of course, I was a, a boy who grew up in Melbourne. Um, you know, I first came to the War Memorial when I was 10 years old. You know, mum and dad were both primary school teachers and in Melbourne and uh, we would drive up to the memorial. So I've been, you know, coming here since I was 10. Then, of course, I paraded here when I was a cadet. I was actually in the um, 1988, my senior year, I was in the commemorative area when the Governor-General lit the eternal flame. And in those days, the entire congregation of Anzac Day fit inside the cloisters of the Australian War Memorial. Um, other than this year, you know, you get 30,000, 40,000 people down Anzac Parade. And then, of course, as a diplomat, I, I brought heads of state and heads of government here. 
who also came to see you know, the soft power of, of the Australian War Memorial, but the very, very hard power of the Australian Defence Force and our, our willingness to, uh, you know, to deploy our considerable assets into harm's way, sort of in the defence of our values and defence of peace. So you put it all together, it kind of makes sense, but it was, it was an accident. Me coming here was, <laughs> was never a design. I genuinely thought I was coming home from London at the end of my posting, go back into the Foreign Service to work, and I was going to come here as a volunteer guide. I really thought I'd be here as a volunteer guide on a Sunday. And, um, you know, people had other ideas. Uh, well, that option of providing um, uh, guidance services remains. Uh, it's at your gift. Let's turn to the fact that you've come at a very, very important time. The Australian War Memorial has been uh, supported uh, by government to expand significantly. Those plans to grow and contemporise uh, the Australian War Memorial, can you walk us through that? Sure. So what we, uh, we've been blessed by, um, by the government and supported by, by both sides of the House uh, back in, in 2018 to expand the memorial, to basically increase the gallery space such that we are able to tell the story of that contemporary service. And what that means is, you know, Anzac Hall, which is out the back, that's where G for George is and Sydney under attack, the Sydney, the, the Japanese midget submarine and, and the air war over the trenches. That building we're going to um, replace double its size only by going nine metres down, so just making it two storeys, similar footprint but two storeys down, so that we can actually tell the story of Afghanistan and of Iraq and of Syria and of the Middle East operations in the Gulf of peacekeeping and uh, humanitarian work because people don't realise, and they certainly don't realise when they come to the memorial, that we have had people deployed on peacekeeping every day since 1947. You know, we've had 40,000 peacekeepers, women and men, who have been deployed in harm's way to um, 30 countries or disputed territories. Uh, we have had deployed 72,000 women and men to the Gulf um, of the Middle East area of operations in the past 30 years. And in 15 paces, I can walk from Vietnam to the Tarrant Wall. So what we're seeking to do is to expand the space that's available to tell the story of contemporary service, but also provide enough additional space such that, you know, we, we, we must plan for the future. And what we want to do is future-proof the building such that in the end that there's the need for you know, further stories and, uh, and, and galleries that the room is there. So it's about you know changing the southern the, the southern entrance that most people would would be familiar with. That's that iconic, um, you know, look up Anzac Parade and you know the Byzantine Dome. That will remain unchanged, but uh, under the underneath we're going to put in a new entrance um, and an orientation gallery, like all good museums do. At the back, we're going to expand Anzac Hall and we're going to uh, improve and modernise the um, what's called the Bean Centre and, and take all of the research functions to make the Bean Centre you know, a place where people come and do their family history and they can research if they're writing books, if they're writing family history or if they just want to know more because their interest has been piqued during a visit to the memorial, that they can do that on site. But most importantly, the reason we're doing all of this on site is because it's all connected. You know, the reason when Bean first conceived, or Charles Bean first conceived of the memorial in sort of Poziers in 1916, he just said it needs to be a memorial, it needs to be a museum, and it needs to be an archive. And it was all about ensuring that for those who weren't there, they could gain a very, very deep um, understanding of the nature of that conflict um, and then when they're up in the commemorative area where the names are recorded on the brass panels, um, you know, the, the bronze panels, the 102,800 names, 
that people have a more meaningful commemoration because they understand the nature of that service and that sacrifice. So we have to do it here rather than going somewhere else. We have to develop on site because all of that, the, you know, the archives, the museum component, the memorial, commemorative area, and the tomb of the unknown Australian soldier are all connected. And, um, and we're not prepared to say that any you know, service or sacrifice in any war is any more or less significant um, than any other conflict. And that's one of the great levellers of the Australian War Memorial is all of the names in bronze. Uh, are, are, um, there are no post-nominals, there's no rank. They're all equal in death because they're equal in service. Matt, I've read that one of your ambitions at the War Memorial is to deliver a bespoke and responsive collection and projects that connect with diverse audiences and each other. What does that mean? So for me, that means we need to, we need to remain relevant. And you know what I know as a, as a father of a 20-year-old and an 18-year-old daughters and a 14-year-old son is that the memorial means different things to them. When they visit the memorial, they want to see you know, the country that they've grown up in, the diversity that they've grown up in represented. So it is about making sure that when they visit here, and as, again, you know, everyone is equal in death, and that's the point of the memorial. We, have, we would have all religions um, commemorated on the Roll of Honour. And it's just about, for me, it's about making sure that when any community comes here, they understand that what we're commemorating is not the service and sacrifice of the individual other than anyone we're commemorating the idea that people who put service before self is is a worthy virtue for both an individual, for a society and for a nation. And so what we want to do is make sure that because we live in a culturally diverse country uh, and we have a culturally diverse defence force, we want to be a place where people from all nationalities, and you know, this afternoon, as uh, I mentioned prior to coming on air, um, I'm hosting the Italian ambassador. This is a place where everyone can come and commemorate service and sacrifice. And really, more than anything else, this is, whilst it's a war memorial, it is a, it is a place where we celebrate the ideals of peace, uh, the ideals of someone putting someone else ahead of themselves. And so that's, that's not specific to any nation, it's not specific to any culture, but we celebrate you know, what is the very, very best of, of our society as sort of proven in, in particularly in the heat of battle, but also, of course, in peacekeeping and humanitarian operations. So I want this to be a place that is for all generations of all Australians. So it's interesting the way you, you describe that. I, if I reflect on my own upbringing, you know, the history of military service has often been told through, you know, the lens of formations and armies and battles, you know, you're describing an ambition to delve deeper into this. How are you doing that? Well, the memorial's always done that. That's, that's the amazing thing for me is, is every, every item in the collection we have because it tells a story. And uh, I, I always ask my staff when I meet them, you know, what's your favourite object in the collection? And whilst there's been a lot of attention in the media around the development and this sense that somehow it's all going to be about these sort of, you know, the, you know this is their term, not mine, when they talk about the large toys, uh, we call them large technology objects. When we put these large technology objects in, you know, a, a Lancaster bomber, for example, we put that in because it tells the story or is there's a touch point there for 10,000 men who served in it and you know, commemorates the 4,000 who didn't come home. So that's a large technology object. You can do that. But equally, and sometimes, or certainly is equally more powerfully, you can tell the story through an individual object. And, and I'm, I'm sort of very touched when I, for example, you, know, you can walk through the First World War gallery and there's a little um, you know, necklace or crucifix um, that, that's there. And you look at it closer and you discover it belongs to a guy 
uh, called Harold Bott, and he was billeted with a French family. And the French family just said, you know, please have this necklace. It's been blessed by the local priest. It will keep you safe. So, you know, he put it on and he wore it, went into battle, was mortally wounded, delivered to the aid post dead on arrival. And at some stage, one of the orderlies was walking past and spotted the necklace and thought, that's a very impressive necklace. And let it down to have a closer look at it and spotted an eyelid flutter. And he went, oh, my God, he's not dead. Picked him up, took him in. He was operated on, survived the First World War, then went on to serve in the Second World War. Now, this is one object, one tiny necklace that tells the story of a man's relationship with his French billeted family, that tells the story of chance in war, that tells the story of, you know, the compassion of, a, of an orderly just, you know, sort of tending to the, you know, the deceased. It tells the story of a man who survived that war through chance and good fortune and then went on to serve again. It really speaks, this is just one necklace, tells that story of, of, um, of chance and of, of luck and of, of blessings and of all sorts of things, but in, in a tiny little object that small. So what we do is we tell big stories with little objects and we tell big stories with big objects, but we just make sure that everything that's there has to be relevant. It has to resonate and it has to have a story attached to it so that when people who have served can walk into the memorial and find a point of reference or a point of meaning or a point of recognition and those family members equally uh, can find that. And then of course, people who have never served and, and it's important to note at the memorial, the majority of people who visit the Australian war Memorial in a given year, have never served in the Australian Defence Force or know someone who's served in the Australian Defence Force. So we need to provide things that they can understand in the context that is meaningful to them, again, so that when they go upstairs into the commemorative area, they will understand how it is that 102,800 names are on the wall, why it is we have an eternal flame, why it is we have a pool of reflection, why it is we have a, the, the Tomb of the Unknown Australian Soldier in the Hall of Memory. And they can put it all together in a way that, like right back to Anzac Day this year, they can put it back together in a way that is meaningful for them, such that when they, they leave the Australian War Memorial, they, they have a, an absolute abhorrence of war, but an appreciation of the nature of service and sacrifice. Matt, that, that tale of the crucifix, I have a story like that in my own family. So that, that I think it must be, there must be hundreds of thousands of occurrences. Um, my, and bear with me, but my, my grandmother's sister gave her, my grandmother a cross when she was heading back up to the mountains. This is in the Dalmatian coast. So, you know, what was then Italy, uh, believing she would not survive and gave it to her to remember her by. And that cross came to Australia. Now, my, my grandmother's sister survived and had a daughter. And um, that cross sat in my house for many years after my grandmother passed away. And it was my uncle who told me the story behind it belatedly. And when I went back to visit my family, I returned it to the daughter of the woman who'd given it to my grandmother. Just that concept, those little, those little artifacts, those little stories. Um, and I've heard many of them. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, they're humbling. They're, they're indeed humbling. But, but I digress because we're not here to talk about my family. Um, <laughs> uh, it is indeed. It is indeed. So Australia is a very different place today than when many of our narratives and stories were first envisaged and told. It's a much more multicultural society. We know Gallipoli, we know Kokoda, we know Long Tan, we know uh, about Afghanistan, but really our community is a very different community. And you talk about the role of the memorial in reaching people who don't have a direct relationship or experience with, with service. 
How do you make yourself contemporary in that respect? Well, interestingly, with some of our more recent um, exhibitions, for example, I mean, notwithstanding the fact that these have all had to be launched virtually uh, in sort of the COVID-19 environment, choosing uh, exhibitions that resonate. We currently have, for example, um, in the, the time that I've been here, we've launched one, for example, which is called the Napier Waller Art Prize, which is just going out to veterans and the veterans community of any description, anyone who has served, and to say, we want you to engage in, in a work of art that is of meaning to you, explain what it means, send it through, and away we go. So 160-odd, I think, we received this year, and we went through the Napier Waller Prize, named after Napier Waller, who was one of the, um, you know, the, certainly one of the most important people in terms of the, the, the artworks that we have here at the Hall of Memory at the Australian War Memorial. Um, the World War I veteran who lost his arm believed that artists paint with their heads, not with their hands, so he just taught himself to paint with his left hand and, uh, and write with his left hand. So he's, his is the um, mosaic in the Hall of Memory and, uh, and then the stained glass windows. So a remarkable man. But so, so it's about the Napier Waller Prize is about just giving a voice to veterans to express the journey that they're on, the pride that they feel in serving, the difficulties they've had after serving, the difficulties they're going through now, what's of interest to them. Um, so that's about the contemporary veteran. And now some of them are, are veterans from Vietnam. Some of them are veterans from Afghanistan. Some of them are peacekeepers. Some of them are people who never deployed operationally, but they were then able to just you know, make meaning of their service through art and communicate with us through art. And it was interesting that the guy that won this year, his artwork, which was a weaving of a very large, turns out it was a signals flag, um, which is Kilo, now the yellow and blue flag that, that, that you know, mariners might know. And what that means in Navy semaphore is, I want to communicate with you. So he's woven this thing that he wants people to touch. He was in a very, very dark place as a, um, a veteran of East Timor. This man found himself sleeping in a car and he used art and weaving and you know, even knitting uh, this, this artwork as a means of actually reconnecting and I want to communicate with you. So when you see this massive, and it's the width of the artwork is the width of his outstretched arms, for example, as a power of the imagery. So it's as high as he is, as tall as he is, and it's as wide as his arms can reach. And I want to communicate with you. So that's a, a bit of contemporary art. How do we communicate with, with the modern person, uh, the, the contemporary society? Um, we have ink in the lines. Again, crowdsourced, Australian War Memorial produced, shot, edited, exhibition on military tattoos. And what do tattoos say about people? What do they say about service? What do they say about camaraderie? What do they say about suffering? What do they say about loss? What do they say about, you know, yeah, sort of camaraderie and, and just the, the, the sense of, of, a, of a moment in time that they want recorded? And again, some of them have said when they look at their tattoos, the reason they got them and they were so overt on their forearms or their arms or their whatever, their chests or their legs, was because they wanted people to ask them what they were about. They wanted to talk about their service. So that's just another way of us being sort of very contemporary to, to a, a very, very diverse audience. But your point about different cultures, I'm, I'm reminded of um, probably one of the most powerful things I've heard since I've been here was of a, um, a young private in the Australian Army who, who spoke as part of our development project. And he said he was at the Kabiho Massacre in Rwanda. And in the midst of that chaos, an Australian soldier knelt down with him, took the Australian patch off his uniform, gave it to him, and he gave him a biscuit. And he said that act of kindness in the midst of madness, he then became, was a refugee, 
came to Australia and was determined to join the Australian Army to say thank you to the nation that did that for him, to say thank you to the nation that was able to produce soldiers that were humanitarians. Uh, so, you know, it speaks to, you know, the, the, um, to the refugee community. What we need to do in all of the things that we do, we are, we are actually, and, and by act of parliament, required to speak to the causes, the conduct and the consequences of the wars and the warlike operations that we report on. So as our story evolves, as we go into this new gallery um, space around Afghanistan and, and Iraq and, and the Middle East and uh, peacekeeping humanitarian, we're actually going to go out nationally to people to understand what is it that people would like to see in the galleries. How is it that you would like that story told? And, and, and bearing in mind too, the story is both, the, you know, for our, our um, you know, the expanse of Australia's community. There are people who can speak authoritatively about the causes of the conflict because they fled from it. There are those who can speak about the consequences of the conflict because they fled from it. And they are now, you know, sort of rich, fully integrated members of our community. So it needs to be relevant to them too. And that's what we're seeking to do by going out nationally and saying, what is it that you would hope to see in the galleries, in this new building, in the new, uh, when we cast a new and a fresh look on it, a contemporary view, we need to be true to our past, true to Bean's vision. And Bean's vision that guides me every single day is, is here is their spirit in the heart of the land they loved. And here we guard the record which they themselves have made. That's as true to the soldier, sailor, airman or woman coming home from the South Sudan as it is to those who served on the Western Front. So we need to tell that story of, of, of contemporary service, of contemporary sacrifice, and the circumstances in which it was provided. And that includes engaging with um, you know, our very, very diverse community. So you've talked about the War Memorial as a place of commemoration and reflection and collective memory for the sacrifices made by uh, and, and for this nation. And you've now touched, really, you've pivoted and talked about how that commemoration can actually bridge community differences and, and, and bring people together around a common theme. What are your plans in taking this further? Dare I say it, every single day at, um, at 10 to 5 every evening, we have the last post ceremony where we gather and we just hear about the life of one of the 102,000 uh, women and men recorded on our roll of honour. And that is, it is a, a secular event. It is one of the most remarkable things where we just understand, you know, the nature of sacrifice um, at an individual level and, and, and what they've left behind. But I think how do you take it further in the, um, in the, in the development, in our continuing story, is, is new ways of storytelling, of using digital technology, of using, you know, of speaking to, to, um, to refugees, of speaking to, of, to those who were there. When I first arrived, we had a thing called The Courage for Peace which was an exhibition on, on Australian peacekeeping. And it went everywhere from, you know, Billy Hughes at the League of Nations through to, you know, to today uh, and talking about what we've done as a nation in the defence of peace, wherever it is. But more importantly, not taking it outside the ADF construct and thinking about the Solomon Islands, for example, where we sent everyone from defence force to police force to diplomats to aid workers to treasury officials uh, and just saying, you know, the work of rebuilding a country is the work of generations or certainly decades and Australia's in it for the long haul. So telling that story of contemporary service that is actually outside, you know, when people stop and think, gosh, peacekeeping, I didn't know that civilians did that. I thought military did that. And, you know, you mentioned at the intro uh, that I'd been a chief negotiator. Well, I was the civilian chief negotiator of our peace monitoring group on Bougainville. 
Um, and people don't know that. People don't know that we sent civilians in unarmed um, to do these sorts of things, to sit there. And, and for me, funnily enough, even that story was me being able to sit down with um, sort of ex-combatants who had, you know, link ammunition across their chest and say to them, mate, I was a soldier once. I used to carry a gun and wear a uniform. And now I'm a civilian. I don't need my gun anymore and neither do you. And, you know, the true act of leadership is putting your weapon down and allowing your kids to go to school and your economy to grow and, uh, you know, the old sort of turning swords into plowshares moment, but actually just, you know, speaking credibly um, about you know, my experience, but also just speaking about, you know, Australia's experience writ large in a way that, that just changes people's perception of what it is that we do, both in the region and what it is that we do to this very day, what the women and men are doing who are deployed on, on operations right now in, in sort of the Middle East, but also in peacekeeping in Africa. Um, and just having people understand that, that we have that we have a long-term investment in the defence of our values and the promotion of our values across the world. And, uh, and people are putting themselves in harm's way to do that at our request. So hopefully that is something that doesn't speak specifically to a particular generation. It doesn't speak to a particular demographic. It should speak to all Australians, old and new. Matt, let's get local for a minute. The, the War Memorial is such a deeply significant and totemic public institution. And, and like you, and like your parents, you know, I too have taken my kids. And <laughs> um, yeah, no, whenever you go to Canberra, uh, not often enough. And, um, and we might have to wait a little bit longer before we can do it again. But you know, it's totemic, but it's, um, you know, it is at the end of the day in the nation's capital. And although, you know, um, sometimes people forget that only a fraction of the people of, of, of Australians actually live there. So, you know, let's talk about making it local and uh, let's talk about the place of pride initiative. Happy to. So the idea is, of course, is it's a very conscious decision from Bean and a very brave decision of Bean to say it's going to go here. It's going to go in the nation's capital and it's going to be positioned here. And, you know, effectively it's going to stand as a challenge here, looking down Anzac Parade to Parliament House saying, just remember, elected members of Parliament, that every decision that you take that sends Australian uh, women and men to war has the consequence and the consequence is at the, in the Australian War Memorial. So it's a very, very deliberate act to place this here. But of course, you know, every community in Australia uh, has, a, has a memorial, large and small. And what we've sought to do is to say, yes, this is, this is the Australian National uh, Memorial, this is the Australian War Memorial in Canberra, belongs to all Australians, every generation of all Australians. But it's importantly, it's also connected. There is a, a, a sinew that runs from the Australian War Memorial to the Avenue of Honour in Ballarat. You know, there is a direct connection between what we do here and what you do in the Shrine of Remembrance. There is a direct connection between the names that are on our Roll of Honour here and the names that might be on Melbourne High School's Roll of Honour. And that idea that all of these places of pride are connected. What we are hoping, what we've already done now, is we've connected 10,000 of them around the country. We've connected these 10,000, um, you know, memorials. Um, you know, and it can be a, it can be the Tobruk swimming pool in far north Queensland, or it can be you know an honour board in a small town hall somewhere in um, in southern Tasmania. But they're all connected because what they're all doing is is sharing the common determination to ensure that their service and sacrifice wasn't in vain. That we will remember them. That promise we make um, we make here at the War Memorial every day. But that um, you know we make you know, nationally, certainly on Anzac Day and on Remembrance Day. So that idea that um, that these places of pride that exist as a place of gathering for communities, a place of remembrance for communities, that 
the place of pride is designed to encourage people to go further. There may be some we don't know about out there. I'm sure there are hundreds or thousands of them. And what we want people to do this Remembrance Day when people pause and reflect is to go out and, um, and find them and take a photo of them, upload it on, uh, onto our webpage, Place of Pride at the Australian War Memorial. And then when people visit here in our new southern entrance, one of the first things they see will be a very, very large screen, an interactive screen, interpretive screen, where they can actually find their place of pride and, uh, and connect whilst they're in the heart of the nation's capital and at the place of national commemoration, they can connect where they are with where they're from. And again, just another way of just making sure that, that, that we are a nation. You know, yes, there are states and there are borders and all those sorts of things, but we are a nation. And as a nation, we have served, suffered and died. As a nation, we are um, connected through shared commemoration and, uh, and that's and shared sacrifice. Again, it doesn't mention where people are from. In fact, it's quite interesting when Bean first conceived of the idea of, um, you know, the role of honour that would capture for the First World War, he wanted them listed not by battalion or, or unit, but by place of enlistment. So gathered by place of enlistment. So that idea, you know, obviously over time, because people joined to different places and whatever else, it took on less meaning. But that was his initial concept was this is a this is a local thing. People, you know, local communities suffered, local communities lost the best and the brightest. Local communities will never be the same because of those who didn't come home or those who did were so profoundly affected by their service and the consequence of their service that they were never the same again and were never able to fully integrate into their families or their communities. So this is a chance for us to, to reconnect the memorial with the nation uh, and we do it through places of pride and it's, again, crowdsourced. We need your listeners to go and find their local memorial, take their photo, and upload it for us. Tell us where it is. Um, do it on Remembrance Day, better still, and give it a real meaning by actually taking it at, at you know, the 11th hour of the 11th month. And it can be everything. It can be the thing that you drive past when you're going through a town on the way up to, uh, you know, to Yarra Glen. It can be, as I say, you know, the, the more obvious ones that, that we all know, the statues, the memorials. Um, but as you know, the expression, every town has one. It's the cenotaph. It's the obelisk. But it is those funny little wooden roles of honour that exist in uh, community halls around the country that people don't even look up at or we want them to look at it, up at them we want them to take a photo of them we want to capture them and we want to integrate them into the Australian War Memorial through our place of pride Well you've set a challenge and, uh, and I'm up for that <laughs> let's, let's go back briefly to, to COVID-19 because it's such a you know, had such a dramatic influence on all the things we're trying to do. And notwithstanding that the borders are coming down, the numbers are looking good and, you know, we will be one nation, hopefully by Christmas, 2021 is still going to be a COVID normal year. How, how will the Australian War Memorial deal with that? So 2021 for us, of course, also subject to um, you know, getting all the necessary approvals and other things will also be when we start our redevelopment. So it's important for people to know when they visit, they will come. We were remaining open because we are a memorial. Yes, we're a museum and we're an archive, but we are a memorial. So throughout the rebuild, we'll stay open. So we have the added challenge in 2021 to commence a, a development project, uh, the bulk of which will be finished by the end of 2023 um, and opened in 2024. So we have that challenge. But of course, we also have that challenge that we, because this is a place where people feel safe, they feel emotionally safe, they feel culturally safe um, and physically safe, uh, we have been very, very um, 
We're sort of rigorous in developing our COVID safe plans, uh, being audited for our COVID safe plans, making sure that you know all of our screens that are touch screens, everyone's got styluses. For the first time in our history, we have had you know a ticketed system. Now that's not designed; no one pays, but that's just designed to, to allow us to control the number of people through the door, uh, such that we cannot exceed you know, the limits of one person per four square meters in the gallery space. So next year that will be the same, you know, but it will mean that. Um, we still know, for example, right, as, as of today, half of the people that arrive at the front door haven't <laughs> booked online. And so we make we make space for that, uh, of course, because people are coming to commemorate. Some people are just coming because they've heard about it. Some people are coming because it's got five stars on TripAdvisor. Uh, some people are coming, I just sort of get that in. Uh, some people are coming <laughs> because it's a an anniversary of a significant event in their family. And some are coming to the last post because they want to lay a wreath at the last post ceremony every day. But next year, they'll be able to do all of those things. The commemorative area will remain open. First World War galleries will remain open. Second World War galleries will remain open. Um, the post-1945 galleries, so, you know, Korea, Malaya, Borneo, Vietnam, uh, veterans, it's terribly important that veterans still come and be able to sign the Tarancot Wall. That's what the Middle East veterans are doing. Um, Vietnam veterans still want to come and see the Long Tan Cross. They, so it's terribly important people can still come and commemorate. But in the middle of all that, we will have to uh, uh, manage the visitor experience, the commemorative experience in such a way that we do so with dignity and grace whilst, you know, acknowledging we're trying to, to reconstruct or redevelop the, the precinct. So it's, um, it's a high wire act next year, but the experience at the War Memorial will still be meaningful. It will still be sombre. It will still be as individual as they wish to make it. Uh, we will hopefully over time, uh, you know, at the moment, of course, one person per four square metres means you can't run tour groups through. Um, we st we've just opened the doors to school kids. You know, we normally get 120,000 to 150,000 school kids a year through. And of course, kids haven't been travelling, kids haven't been doing school excursions. They're starting to come back now. Certainly the local Canberra kids are just starting to come back and that's extraordinary to, to welcome kids back into the memorial uh, because they are, they are the future of this place and the future of our nation's commemoration and understanding. Um, so when people come next year, uh, it will be hopefully as, as things relax, um, we will be able to run the normal guides. We're running audio guides at the moment so people can just pop on their headsets and wander through and, and undertake a, a visit in their own time and in their own uh, pleasure. But I think the guided experience is the most meaningful because it's interactive because you can ask the guide questions when something piques your fancy or you have a particular family history connection you want to ask or or you're just interested in something he said and you want to know more or you want to know what you want to ask why so um, I'm hopeful that next year that will be relaxed in such a way that we can conduct uh, smaller groups that come through that individuals will still of course always be welcome there'll be more school kids through which will be just remarkable but people will still I think for you know even in at the back end of the house my you know my, my staff are still sitting you know one person every second workstation all those things we're still doing all of that um, at the peak of the crisis for us here in Canberra in lockdown uh, we redeployed staff to different work areas uh, because we were close to the public the front-facing people were redeployed to work on everything from media to uh, to collections to curating to uh, conserving um, we redeployed people to services australia to pay the um you know the various uh, um you know sort of um uh, schemes that were being paid by the government so my people were remarkably flexible they're all back now but they're still socially distant every room still has a sign on it saying this room has the capacity of x um and we still 
rub elmos and you know do all those sorts of things that one does i still meet virtually i still launch books virtually i still do those things i think that's going to be the new normal i don't think i'll be jumping on a plane anytime soon to uh you know i'm giving a speech next week to um to a singapore culture um meeting which you can imagine in times of yore i would have jumped on a plane and gone up there and done it in person um, you know, we launched a book last week on um, on the medical sufferings, the medical, medical legacies of the Vietnam War, and I was able to invite some Vietnam veterans here. But uh, Graham Edwards launched it from Western Australia, and the author, Dr. Peter Yule from Melbourne University, was in Melbourne. So, I think we've actually proven in some things there are efficiencies to be gained in how we do that, but in others, um, you know, we, uh, there is nothing like coming here, as you know, with your kids, walking into the commemorative area, and understanding. So we will be welcoming people. It won't be the same number of people that we could get through in, in, a, in a peak year. We would get 1.2 to 1.5 million people through the doors. Um, and we just can't do that we, with the physical floor loading. We won't be able to do that. And I suspect that with the development, we'll also need to, uh, and just simple things like fire exits and everything else and toilets, we won't be putting that number through. But I guarantee once we finish the reconstruction, the redevelopment, uh, we'll be welcoming millions of visitors through. And I can't wait. I suspect next year you'll be much in demand as I think it will be the year of domestic tourism. I certainly hope so. My great wish is that the staycationers uh, flock to the Australian War Memorial. You know, it is um, the most visited sort of cultural institution in Canberra, but arguably to me it is the most important um, institution in Canberra. I mean, the PM on two occasions this year has said to me that this is Australia's most sacred place and I would love to share it with uh, the Australian people, particularly the Victorian people. You know, in a good year, uh, the Victorians and New South Welshmen make up half of our visitors. Um, so that's terribly important to us. So with the idea of, of opening the borders and allowing Victorians in particular, but Australians genuinely, to be able to come back and reconnect with you know, what is you know, the soul of the nation and the soul of the nation's service, uh, I, I just, they would be welcomed with open arms. Matt, I want to thank you for your time today and um, your insights um, and, and the stories and sharing your plans for the Australian War Memorial. I too look forward to getting up to Canberra and being one of those visitors. It'd be most, I can show you, show you the, the, the back lot tour. It'd be my honour. New episodes of Anything But Square are released every Wednesday and we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and sign up to our newsletter at fedsquare.com. Take care and we'll see you next Wednesday.